welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz, and you can find me by the coffee maker in the teacher's lounge. I need all the caffeine I can get right now because I am fixing to do some critical thinking. And critical thinking takes real work. Over the past couple of weeks, I have spent more time on social media than I would recommend. It was the political back and forth on an issue that got me there. It doesn't matter what the issue is, okay? Um, But it got me sucked into things. And what kept me there were the arguments. There were detailed ones. There were compelling ones. There were obviously terrible ones. But the ones that interested me the most involved double standards. You know, when I watch these debates go down, I see a fixation on rightness. Who has the holy grail in terms of facts or viewpoints? And once people feel like they've locked onto the truth, it becomes very difficult for them to embrace any opposing information. And I don't think I'm any different. You know, I want to think I am. I really do. Uh, But we're all subject to this. And no viewpoint or ideology is safe. It doesn't matter what side of the issue you're on. Uh, We've got people in our camps, whatever they are, that do this stuff, you know, where they say, hey, the research that is opposing what I believe is just isn't of a high enough standard. But, you know, then we turn around and take information that confirms our beliefs at face value. And and sometimes we don't even dig into it. You know, and I, I know my son is going to have a lot of, what's the word, hooey? Malarkey? It's bullshit. He's going to have a lot of bullshit thrown at him. And I don't really know what to do about it. There, um, there was a Stanford study, and I'll link to it in the show notes, where 80% of middle school students believed that an ad was a real news story, even though, by the way, it was labeled as sponsored content. But that is really small potatoes compared to everything else out there, deep fakes and coordinated disinformation campaigns. There's going to be a lot of this in the future. It's already serious and it no longer seems like having the answers is enough or even easily attainable. So I know that my son needs something more. I think we all do. So I lined up an interview with someone who could really speak to this, not just for interpreting information, but also for communicating it well. And that's no small feat. I reached out to Julie Bogart. She's an experienced educator and writer. She is uh, the creator of the Brave Writer program, which is pretty cool. She helps kids uh, as young as five find their voices as writers. Uh, But what got me there or what made me want to reach out was a book she just released called Raising Critical Thinkers. Before I get into it, I want to shout out our sponsor for the episode. Othership is a guided breathwork app. I've tried meditation apps. I've tried lots of stuff, actually, because I recognize the value, but it can be hard to get into. It can be hard to be in the moment. Othership, for me, has hit the sweet spot in terms of complexity. Uh, it's, there's music and there's guided breath work, and uh, you know it keeps me in the moment during the session and it helps me stay there after my session is done and your attention is valuable and whatever helps you master and take control of it is worth exploring straight up so it doesn't have to be othership but i'm a fan of it and i would encourage you to try it out you can check it out for free by visiting othership.us now for my interview with julie bogart let's get into it So I'm Julie Bogart. I grew up in California and moved to Ohio 22 years ago, and I raised five children. During that time, I home educated them for 17 years, 
almost all of them have had some experience with public school. Some went to high school. Uh, they are all grown now. They're globetrotting adults living in places like Thailand and Mexico and Denver and California. And they are leading productive lives. I always think I need to say that because homeschooling is always this big question mark for people. Today, I run a company called Brave Rider. I started it 22 years ago to help parents learn how to create conditions that made their children want to write, not just to do it well, but to actually take pleasure in self-expression and to discover that they had things worth saying and worth expressing. Uh, we prepare them through online classes, through curriculum that we've written, but all of it centers around this idea that all of us have a right to be writers. How young do they start? So Brave Writers starts with kids who are about five years old and it runs all the way up to ages 18. And we have an online membership group called the Brave Learner Home, which has parents of all kinds of educational backgrounds uh, who spend time together learning to be effective educators, compassionate parents, and what we call awesome adults. And we use that space to do what we might call in-service training for all of those features. We have over 10,000 members in that group. Brave Rider has been used by families in over 191 countries. We have a large staff. It's really uh, a labor of love. Uh, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast. I'm going to check it out. I've got a five-year-old and I think he is a storyteller. I think language is really important to him and, and that's something we want to explore. Wonderful. You know, with five-year-olds in particular, a lot of times we assume that we should wait for them to be able to read and handwrite before they start having the right to experience themselves as a writer or as an author. And I would recommend to you and anyone with young children, catch them in the act of telling you those stories. Don't ask for them. But when you hear them coming out of their mouths, just start jotting it down on the back of an envelope or a supermarket receipt and take their exact words down for them. And then later that night at dinner, pull it out and say, hey, I was listening to this story from Sun, and I just want to read it to everyone at the table because I was afraid I'd forget it. And it's so good. I wrote it down and then read it aloud and let them experience themselves as authors before they even know how to read and write. You'll be amazed at how far that goes in their motivation level to learn I can, those skills. I can picture that and I can I can kind of feel his his pride um, in this. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's um, OK. This is exciting. Um, and, you know, I so I have to ask with with homeschooling, like what was it more about like what was being taught? Was it how it was being taught? Was it the whole environment? What kind of got you on this track? Such a beautiful question. So at the time that I was first having children, I actually lived in North Africa. And a lot of the expatriates I knew were homeschooling their children. So I had the opportunity to sort of firsthand see what it looked like to be the person who wanted responsibility for education. And I think what happened for me is I caught a vision for family life which included learning. So one of the early concepts that was shared with me was, remember how excited you were when your baby rolled over or took their first steps or said their first words. Wouldn't it be cool to be the person who got to see them read for the first time, use math for the first time? Wouldn't it be great to be the one reading them the books that they got excited about and you could have these big juicy conversations? And once I caught a vision for that, it wasn't even a decision for me. I just 
by the time my kids were school-aged, I had already decided, and it just felt like a seamless continuation of the life we were already enjoying. There's a ton I want to ask you, but I feel like before we even get into that, how are we defining critical thinkers? My gosh, it's such a great question. And honestly, um, the foreword is written by someone who is a neuroscientist, and she even made the comment that when she taught at her university and they were talking about offering courses in critical thinking, uh, no one could come up with a unifying definition that even in an academic context where people are uh, supposedly teaching these skills, they did not come up with a unifying explanation of what a critical thinker is. In my book, here's how I define it. I define it as the ability to evaluate evidence, in other words, information that comes to us, but simultaneously to notice bias as it kicks into gear, and then to consider a variety of perspectives, even if some of those perspectives make you uncomfortable. And finally, to render a possible verdict, what you believe to be true for now. In other words, critical thinking is a lot about your own process of thinking. It's not just about evaluating the ideas that other guy has that are crazy. It's actually taking the camera lens and doing what I call an academic selfie, flipping it around and examining your own reactions. Are you looking forward to what you're reading? Are you afraid of it? Do you want to discredit it before you even start? What do you hope will be true when you read it or listen? Once you've identified those things, you're starting to create the opportunity to even hear the case somebody else wants to make and allowing them to make that case. Whether or not your goal is to agree with it is almost irrelevant. It's can you get what's at stake for the person who is making this argument? What I'm hearing in this and and what I think is really interesting is you are working with bias. So rather than saying, I'm going to think my thoughts are going to be so pristine and so well-structured that I won't even have to consider bias as a factor. You're actually going and saying, we're waiting for that to arrive almost as an inevitability. And then we're working with that bias. That's exactly right. I think we have been led to believe because of maybe the educational model that most of us have participated in that there's a way to learn information that is objective. But of course, we've learned over the last 150 years with postmodern critique and all kinds of um, subjectivity being introduced into the way that we learn, that bias is inevitable. It's very difficult to separate yourself from your bias. So one of the things that we want to do first is just make it visible. Just know that it's occurring and pay attention to it. Is my heart racing? Do I find myself bracing myself? Am I eager? Am I skipping statistics? Am I ignoring an argument that I don't want to be true? I told a story of when I was in college and went to UCLA as an undergraduate, and I wrote this paper that I felt very persuaded about, and I spent all this energy finding really good research. The paper was finished. Right at that time, I ran into a piece of data that undermined my central thesis. At least it challenged it. And I was left with this dilemma. Do I go back and rewrite, rethink, and incorporate this new information? Or do I pretend I never saw it? And I'm sorry to admit (laughs) that I pretended I never ran into this piece of data. And that is a telling moment in the way a lot of us treat our biases. 
because I was more interested in a grade. I was more interested in getting done. I was more interested in meeting a deadline than I was in actually learning, which is the objective of that assignment. So when we're scrolling through Facebook and we're seeing our good friends, you know, from years gone by sharing things that cause us to react with shock or discontent or anger or upset, that's a moment to ask ourselves, what is being provoked in me? What am I protecting right now? What's at stake for me? Because we can't even begin to understand the other person if we aren't aware first of our own need for self-protection which is what bias is. Like, you're not going to believe this, but uh, there are some people on Twitter who are arguing right now. <laughs> I've heard tell. <laughs> not, to, you've, <laughs> uh, not to blow your, your mind or anything. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm always really interested in what, how people are talking around a big issue. And it often, from their perspective, it's dead simple. It's, yes. you know, on, on both sides. Um, you know, and some of the information is biased. Um, you know, people are condemning folks on the other side of the argument Yep. Uh, for something that they would let slide if it were from their in-group mm -hmm. or they are saying that, okay, this piece of research is not of a high enough standard when they're actually pretty relaxed about information that confirms their own opinions. Mm. Um, and then there are more egregious examples of double standards and then there are just straight up lies. Um, so what I want to ask you is how do we... How do we help our kids differentiate between uh, propaganda and bias uh, and, and, you know, cr credible research? So first, I think it's important to talk about what is a fact. Facts are irreducible. So a lot of times when we hear information, it is a fact that is shaped by interpretation. Most of us don't just report facts. We don't say water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit and 100 Celsius. We're talking about why boiling water matters, right? What was the purpose of it? A lot of times I'll say, you know, it's raining. We can agree it's raining, but I might be mad about it and you might be glad about it for a whole set of factors. So when we present a fact, what we often fail to consider is that the fact is going to live inside somebody's imagination. And all of the factors that shape their imagination influence how they understand that same piece of data. And so a lot of times when we're dealing with what we would call bias or reactivity, we think facts will persuade, but we forget that facts live inside of what I would call a fiction. And the fiction is the story you tell yourself about the fact. And we've watched this, for instance, in the pandemic, right, where we have this universal experience. It's, it's the only experience in my 60 years on the planet that I can think of where there isn't a single person on planet Earth who isn't impacted by it. I mean, just think about that. You'd have to leave the planet to find someone <laughs> who hasn't been impacted by this. So we're all confronted with the fact of this illness. There's no one who says, I mean, there was a time where people said it didn't even exist, but I think now we've kind of gotten to a point where we accept it actually exists. But it's our reaction to it and what we do with that information that shapes who we listen to, what sources of authority we credit, and what it will decide about how we experience our own lives. So when we're looking at how to help our kids, one of the places that I like to begin is by asking the question, what do you hope will be true? 
This is a mm. question you can ask about any information that comes your way. So you have a kid who comes to you and he says, dad, video games are awesome. They can't hurt you in any way. I read this article. You can come back to him and say, well, when you read the article, what did you hope to find? Well, I hope to find that they're awesome. All right, let's find another article and um, read a counterpoint just for the sake of it, just to see what that feels like. And then you read one that tells you your child's going to turn into some kind of violent person. And now you're reading skeptically. I hope this mm -hmm. isn't true. I hope this isn't true because those things control the data as you're reading it and interpreting it. Uh, so those are very low level. I mean, I have five other ideas for you, but I'll let you interject <laughs> and then I'll tell you the next one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it reminds me in your book, you you have this great story about the uh, the three little pigs. Yes. But from an unreliable narrator, maybe I can get you to, to talk about that. Yeah, great. So when my son Noah was three, he was obsessed with the three little pig story. So I told it to him all the time on walks, in the bathtub, at dinner time, at bedtime. And of course, I told it the way I had grown up hearing it, which is an omniscient storyteller, someone who knows all the facts at third person. And I would just go through the houses being blown down, right, until the wolf gets in trouble. And then one day we were at the library and John Shezka, who is a fabulous children's writer, came out with this new book and it was called The True Story of the Three Little Pigs. And this story was told from the point of view of the wolf. So I brought it home, I read it to Noah, and he became obsessed because suddenly he was introduced to the idea that this story he thought he knew as whole cloth, as true, as factual, was suddenly being seen from a different point of view. And of course, the reason the book is funny is John Shezka is playing with the fact that we all know the original narrator. And this guy is a version of an unreliable narrator, a literary trope where you can't trust the main person telling the story because they're manipulating the information to serve their ends. Now, Noah was three. He wasn't identifying literary tropes. He was just being entertained. And part of what entertained him was my reaction. I was laughing. I was contro the controlling lens for whether or not to take this wolf seriously. One of the questions I pose in the book, though, is, what if Noah had only ever heard the wolf's version of the story first? What if he was introduced to the pig's perspective, sort of on a lark, after thousands of retellings from the wolf's perspective? Would he have been able to discern which one was reliable? Would we automatically know to discredit the wolf and to champion the pigs? Repetition has a confirming, um, a, a confirming, uh, experience on the data, on the information. And so because of repetition, we had established the credibility of the original story. Another thing that we can do then is when we're reading with our kids, whether it's history or literature or science fiction or whatever, is to ask the simple question, says who? Says who? Who's telling this story? We can follow it up with whose story isn't being told? You know, if we're watching Cinderella, we love to do this with Disney movies. They're great. Mulan, you know, uh, any of the Disney films, Little Mermaid. Think about telling it not only from the villain's perspective, but even from the perspective of a minor character or an inanimate object. What is the different way this story might be told if we took into account someone else's experience? This is the beginning of helping our kids realize that facts are often housed in perspectives. 
Mm-hmm. I want to know why Disney's killing off all the parents. I know. It's a great question. What was it? The, the, the wolf just wanted to borrow a cup of sugar. Oh, yes. And it was the allergies causing the, um, the, uh, the destruction of property. That's right. And then he had to eat the pigs. I mean, you wouldn't want all that ham to go to waste, right? He was just doing a service, cleaning up after himself, right? You know, part of his uh, high morality. That's right. One, one might argue. Um, so you use uh, reading and, and grammar and observation in this book to develop critical thinking. And, and these are not political things. There's no morality. There's no partisanship or good guys or bad guys. Is that by design? It is. Because we all fall into the same sort of habits of thought, or we fall into the habits of thought of our group. Let me put it that way, because not everybody's identical. The controlling force in our lives, the biggest controlling force in our lives, in our habits of thought are our communities. We often think we're very independent thinkers, and there will be some perceptions that you have that control the the beliefs you have. I tell a story of visiting my Chinese-American neighbors when I was six years old, and when I arrived, the mother made me take my shoes off. It was the first time I'd ever been introduced to the idea that shoes indoors might not be hygienic. 20 years later, I lived in Morocco. I visited Japan two more places where shoe wearing was considered recklessly unsanitary. And it was 20 years in the making for me to ask that question, is my family the anomaly here? Is the way most Americans do it unusual on the global stage? Our personal perceptions and the logic stories that our communities create for us form the bedrock of how we see the world, the worldview that feels like skin, that's so natural to us, we can't imagine doing it another way. And so until we make that visible, it's very difficult for us to realize that other people are operating from within within the same schema in their own lives. So what I try to do in this book is talk about things like being keenly observant, learning to add detail and vocabulary to what you observe. So a very benign example is to take an object with your child, like let's say you pick up um, a pine cone and you're looking at it and it looks like a pine cone. Simply looking at it from the top or the bottom actually changes what the pine cone looks like. But if I were to ask you, what does a pine cone look like? The first thing you're going to describe is going to be that horizontal view, the way that we see it in all the illustrations we've ever seen. Simply by looking at it from the top or the bottom, we've already started to shift how we understand it. We might say the pine cone is brown because we've been trained to see at the most superficial level and get to the quote, right answer quickly and first. But if you're patient, you might notice that the brown variegates on close observation, depending on how the light's hitting it, depending on which one of those little pine things that sticks out, if you're looking underneath or from above, it might look more golden in some lighting, it might look darker brown in others. And pretty soon you're realizing there's so much more to know about pine cones than what I just assumed I knew because of a superficial understanding. So part of the reason I give these kinds of activities is because we have to train ourselves to see. And if we pick the most charged ideas and opinions we have, 
our reactivity is so strong, we literally can't do it. But if we start getting comfortable with introducing nuance and perspective and additional information and defying our senses, we will become more comfortable doing that with more challenging subject matter. So it sounds like there's not just um, sort of a removal or, or separation from our day-to-day -day reality. We kind of enter this world that feels different, but there's no, um, the emotional stakes are low. We don't need to be right. We That's don't have right. our identity invested in this. I, I feel, is, is critical thinking like, um, you know, having taste in music or art where everybody thinks they have good <laughs> taste, everybody thinks they have critical thinking? For but. sure. Everybody thinks they're a good driver too. And I always take a lot of pride in telling people that I'm not. I feel very comfortable saying that. Um, yes, everyone thinks they're good at critical thinking. I'll tell you why. We love, love, love our own thoughts. And the thought process that we go through to arrive at them is a logic story that integrates all the various pieces of data available to us. And it feels powerful to draw a conclusion after you've done both the conscious and unconscious evaluation of information as it comes to you. It's going to establish your identity, your legitimacy in a group, the tightness of some of your relationships, and your feeling that your place in the world is safe. And this is so biological, right? Like we all want that feeling. We all want to know that my vision of how life should be is the one that's getting protected. I often mm -hmm. say to people that I disagree with, and this is a habit I use with adults as a way to get away from the binary of I'm right, you're wrong. If I notice they're going down a path where they're getting hostile toward me and they suspect that I must not agree with them, the question I ask is, can you paint a picture for me of how life would be beautiful based on your belief system? Like give the person the opportunity to paint a picture for you to show you all the pieces of how their worldview came into being. One of the things I've discovered when I've done that process with people, especially people that think I'm hostile or that think I don't share their worldview, is they take a lot of pleasure in it. And I'm mm. able at a certain point to see that pleasure and affirm the heart that wants that beautiful vision. Even if it's one I find really limiting for certain groups of people or certain ideas. So let me give you sort of a benign example, because sometimes if we get in the political and social issues, it's too difficult to discuss. But education is a great example. I run into a lot of parents have over the years before the pandemic that were very hostile to homeschool, who really mm -hmm. thought that homeschoolers were a threat to traditional forms of education. So when they would get hostile with me at a soccer field while we're watching our kids kick a ball, I might say, tell me what it is about public education and the values behind it that really make you happy with that choice and why you think it should be universal and what you think I'm missing and really give them the full opportunity to describe it. And then one of the things that you can do if they invite you back or if you feel comfortable you can ask questions that help them get a peek inside your perspective. So I might say, well, for children who find that style of learning challenging, what other solutions can we consider? How can mm. we expand to include this group of people in your solution? Too often, we enter into a discussion with one aim, conversion. 
And if you look at the history of humanity, conversion leads to wars. <laughs> it, it literally leads to the Crusades, right? We are saying this is a zero-sum discussion. You're either on board with me or we get rid of you. But what I'm saying is critical thinking leads us to expand, to include more people in our solutions. The more we know them, the more we get what's at stake for them, the more likely it is we can include them as we imagine a different future together. I would be willing to bet that in some of those conversations, once people are more comfortable with you, they, you know you're there when they begin to express curiosity. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And not everyone can. You know, I have some relationships in my family where it's painful for them to imagine that I think differently than them. And one of the things that I try to explore a little bit in the very last chapter of the book is that if being right is the hallmark of how your relationship is aligned and intimate, you don't actually have intimacy. What you have is sort of a statement of faith. You've created agreement around an idea, but you aren't willing to risk knowing each other. What I hope families can do is create little communities inside their homes that are safe for dissent. Dissent is what allows us to actually have community. And so the healthiest spaces, and I hope it starts at home, are those that welcome a child's irrational perspective from the adult's point of view. You might have a child who comes to you and says, I totally disagree, mom. Computer games for 24 hours straight are just fine. If all we do is go into parental indoctrination program 101, we actually are limiting the capacity for that child to go through any kind of critical thinking journey and for us to be transformed by the logic story they're telling their, themselves. You know, they're saying, I don't think it would damage me. I do think it would be fun. I do think it would get me where I need to go in this game. And I recommend that parents roll the dice occasionally. Like, let's let them collect their own data, their own experience, discover whether or not their hunch bore out in real life instead of cutting it off at the knees and playing that parental game of I know better than you and limiting their capacity to think. My son asked me the other day, um, it was maybe three or four days ago. What does rebellious mean? He heard it, I love it. on a show and, and I explained it to him and I saw his eyes widen. I could just watch the gears turning as he thought about this and, and what it meant. And, and I wonder as you, you know, as you were saying that I was thinking probably we have to do the same thing where we have to, the best opportunities for this are where the stakes are low. That's right. Um, you know, so maybe if like screen time is a big debate in the household. Let's leave that one aside. Yeah. Don't start there. You could start with hand washing. You know, you mm. got a five-year-old who doesn't want to wash their hands before dinner. And you say, most of us say, well, you have to, right? We just go straight to, you have to. There are invisible germs that you can't see that if they get on your food, you're going to get sick. And we already know most of them aren't going to get sick from eating without washing their hands. Like we know this is fact. So what are we really doing? We're trying mm -hmm. to inculcate an idea of hygiene. So step back, talk to your child. There are things you can do. You can test to see what water temperature they can tolerate. You can try using a wipe or hand sanitizer. You can roll the dice and let them go without washing their hands and see if they get sick the next day. You can get a microscope and look at germs on a slide. 
we can go so much further and we can't do this for everything. I mean, sometimes you just got to tie the shoes and get out the door and go to Target. I understand that. But if once a week or <laughs> once every two weeks, you actually take a dissenting comment of your child seriously and you start showing them what it means to collect data, you don't have to use that language, but you just let them have some experiences. It's like my oldest son, Noah. He had amazing body awareness from a very young age. He had confidence that he could walk on an eight foot wall when he was seven years old. You know, am I gonna let him find out if that's true? Yes, I, I did. Uh, but you know, we started with two feet walls. We didn't mm -hmm. start with the eight foot wall, right? Yeah. The, you're a lot, we, we have a version of making mistakes where that's right. doing so is not catastrophic. We can, we can test this out. And that is a hypothesis, right? Can you, if you can do it on this theoretically and, you know, and then we can, there's lots to untangle. And I like how, you know, or, or what I, I'm most heartened by is this idea that the whole discussion is enjoyable. That's right. We're, we're expressing curiosity. We're saying, Hey, maybe you're right. Maybe this is nonsense. Right. I gotta be Wouldn't honest that with you. that be amazing? Like just to pause for a moment and ask yourself, am I just parroting something that I've heard? Have I really thought through when, and you know, especially during the pandemic, hand washing was such a big deal at the beginning. And then it kind of shifted when we heard, oh, it's more about the breath, right? So mm -hmm. even surfacing some of those ideas with your kids, allowing them to have some sort of um, question marks, like we don't have to be the answer person. I have this one activity that I recommend called the Great Wall of Questions. So what you can do, and this can be for teens all the way down to your youngest kids, get a stack of post-it notes and a pen. And then on a sliding glass door or a whiteboard that's in a prominent place in your kitchen, every question your child asks, write it down and stick it on the wall. Don't answer it. So even questions like, why does Johnny get the blue toothbrush and I wanted it first? Or what's a black hole? Or mommy, why do we have to go to the dentist? No matter what the question is, stick it on the wall. And after a few days or a week, depending on your kid's tolerance level, at a mealtime, start peeling them down. Let them sit with the fact that the question has no answer for a few days. Maybe read them over breakfast and see if they have any others they want to add to them. And then finally, bring a laptop to the table or your cell phone and just start looking things up about the questions and talk about some of them. This starts to create a culture where curiosity is honored more than just being right. And it's such an important part of critical thinking to be curious, to let your mind wander, wander, to allow for questions to layer one on top of each other, and to discover that there are lots of sources of information available to us to answer those questions or learn more about them anyway. Mm -hmm. And not have an answer for a while to sit in that. That's right. Mm -hmm. I love this. And you know, one of the questions, and I think this is emerged really organically was, okay, well, if I'm not, I'm not homeschooling my, my child for, am I, am I ruining his future? No. First of all, <laughs> I, I think, you know, well, he'll be okay. But, but then the next question was, well, how do we incorporate some of these concepts, you know, with our available bandwidth, time and attention and everything? Right. And I, I think this is all, you know, it all feels, uh, really doable. Um, let me, let me ask you this. Um, I, I feel like being able to tolerate being wrong for it to mm. not be catastrophic, um, you know, or feel like a, a tremendous failure when we are wrong, when we are incorrect. How do we, how do we deal with young egos and, and resilience and, and help 
um, kids feel comfortable with this. And probably there's always going to be like a knee jerk thing. Like, am I too lenient? Am I, is, is my son too comfortable being wrong? Is he just going to, you know, uh, (laughs) spout nonsense all day because he feels like there are no repercussions. So how do we, how do we find that balance? I mean, I, it's all about relationship, right? And also recognizing that you can't do parenting perfectly. Uh, there's no way to do that. And children will suffer the slings and arrows of miscalculations, just like we have as adults. I remember when one of my kids was 15, and just sort of to show you where he landed, he's a human rights lawyer today. So he's been interested in justice issues for a long time. So at age 15, he got interested in this one social issue. I'm not going to name it, just so we don't create reactivity in the audience. <laughs> And um, it was a ballot issue in Ohio. And of course, he wasn't old enough to vote. So he did all of this research and he sat me down and he gave me his case for why I should vote pro. And it was very well researched. He had good articles. He had good arguments. He had really good thinking on the subject. And so I complimented him. I said, Jacob, this is great. Makes so much sense. I totally see where you're coming from. Let me restate it. Is this what you're saying? Yes, that's what I'm saying, mom. And I said, that's that's great. He said, so are you going to vote pro? And I said, no, I'm voting con. <laughs> and <laughs> tears sprang to his eyes. And he said, mom, I count on you to be logical. <laughs> and I paused. I said, oh, so you really thought you were going to persuade me. He goes, well, I've just made this case. Like, how can you not see it? I said, well, one thing you didn't do is ask me what I thought. You didn't, you weren't curious about my ideas. And you know, the thing is, you don't have to be. I'm not asking you to give me the floor. I was listening to you. My ideas may even change again now that I have your information and I want to think about it more. But right now, yeah, that's not where I am. Interestingly, over the years, We've had countless conversations. We've shaped each other's understanding. He actually helped me verify and validate research in this book. And at one point he said to me, mom, I was reading through chapter X and he said, and I was really disagreeing with your opening paragraphs. And then I got into your research and I was like, oh my God, she's right. So like we do that with each other, right? We are more capable of that today than when he was 15. But if you create a context where Like I wasn't trying to talk him out of being pro when I was Mm. con. I was actually really impressed with his thinking. If we can create that kind of space in our families, then even when they feel a little over their skis or they can't believe you didn't agree with them, they will have a model to fall back on as maturity kicks in. Yeah. I think about, you know, in sports, we'd say, Hey, you know, we're focused on your effort and your teamwork and everything like this and not so much the outcomes. I hear that less in terms of how are you thinking about this? How are you, how organized is that? Um, but I can also imagine the heartbreak of, I just, I just did a mic drop of, of, (laughs) of research back, you know, based fact I'm, I'm delivering the straight truth and still nothing. Well, so the schools condition us to think that there's a right answer. If you think about your education, you're in a classroom of 30 kids. You all take the same test. You're graded based on correct answers. There's a single authority who knows what those are. And we all agree as a consensus that those right answers have merit and we can all recognize that they're right. You know, for me, when I got really interested in critical thinking was at the dawn of the internet because I was so stunned that I could go into a chat room with a homogeneous group of women. So we were stay-at-home mothers, homeschoolers, mostly married, heterosexual, mostly from the same religious and political views. And we were having bloodbaths 
over cloth versus paper diapers, right? Over breastfeeding, over theological tenets or a political issue. And I couldn't grasp why. What was it that was driving this need to be right and an inability to tolerate the discomfort of someone we liked, not 100% aligning with us? And as I've done the research over the years, I put forward kind of a bold thesis. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying this is kind of the conclusion I drew. I think we've been trained to believe that there is this single answer. And if we cite the fact, everyone will be forced to align with us. But what we didn't account for is that once we got out of school, we're all drawing on different sources of authority. And so here we are under time pressure, scrolling through Facebook with a thumbs up, thumbs down option with a tiny little comment space. And we literally feel called on the same way a test called on us to have an answer right away. And then we assume if we just put out what is the right answer, everyone will fall in line and say, well, yes, of course, that's the right answer. You cited an authority. We all agree. But it's not a single teacher anymore. And we're not in a test situation. And even those tests we took are flawed. I share some examples in my book. Mm. Um, you know, I think back to to being a, a new parent. And a lot of our decisions were like, how do I not screw this kid up? Like the the um, amount of debate on um, can we breastfeed, um, you know, for for example, and a lot of a lot of moms have been made to feel less than uh, yep. for going to a bottle, which, which you know, in some cases, we you know, I have since learned is is exactly the right thing to do. Um, so part it's not um, even like trying to be a moral authority is just not be a screw up. Oh, I just want to, I want to be okay. Yeah, we want to do things, but that's exactly the knife's edge, right? So we are so addicted to this idea of doing things right and being right and not making mistakes that we actually are not gracious to other people's experience, um, to the raw edges of human existence that they may have confronted that have never been a factor in my life. Uh, their circumstances, their economics, the neighborhood they grew up in, the way that their family constructed reality to protect them. You know, I had home births, I breastfed, I didn't circumcise. I was one of those girls, I was a homeschooler. I mean, I'm as, you know, alternative as they come. And I thought that you had to double down on those beliefs to bolster them in a society that was status quo the other way. Yeah. Instead of recognizing that when we are a critique to the status quo, we are just a critique. We're not the only alternative. It's just expanding to include more options, more ways, other ways of seeing, bringing perhaps a corrective that has been overlooked. That's one of the benefits of looking at alternatives. But flip side, the alternative bears a much bigger responsibility of finding credible information and not just relying on anecdote and experience. And so starting to know kind of the contours of what responsibility goes with the choices we make and how we align ourselves is really important. I do some of that in this book too, kind of helping you figure out the tools of measurement, what the benchmarks are in the field, and how much confidence we put in our opinions, right? It's okay to have a viewpoint. Not everything you have is an opinion. You aren't, you don't have the proper experience or education to actually have one. You just have a viewpoint based on a collection mm -hmm. of things you've absorbed. And a lot of them are 
going to be just fine. But, you know, I, right. I love I love your your example, because, yeah, as you describe um, your your experiences as a mom, it's yeah, it's pretty crunchy granola. I think we can <laughs> yeah. say Southern California. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, and I, I, I've met a lot of people and there are a lot of folks like this in the, you know, in the wellness space right. who have said, you know, um, the mainstream hasn't worked for me in these places it's really let me down. Um, and somehow that's become wrapped up in an identity where That's everything right. is counter to the mainstream. Yep. I, I mean, I think for me, the biggest move, so I'm 60, had my first child when I was 25. I had five kids. I've lived abroad. I've been a part of all kinds of ideological spaces and a deeply devoted ideological person. What I learned over those years is that the feeling of being right is like a protective coating. It's a way of feeling safe in a very chaotic and unstable world. We look for certainty because we think certainty will protect us. But what I've discovered over these 30 years and through a lot of the research I did for this book is that we can substitute intimacy for certainty. That's the alternative. The opposite of certainty isn't uncertainty and doubt, it's intimacy. If we can let go our need to be right as the criteria for whether or not we are living worthy lives, we can actually become intimate with people from a variety of backgrounds. We return ourselves to the human race and we actually mm. expand options. We create more room for people to have their own unique experience of their own lives. And then we also create more opportunity for the data to change. One of the mistakes we often make is we assume, okay, I got the data, you know, 10 years ago. So that must be the way it still is. That must be the way the information still runs. And that's just never true. Things are being updated, reinterpreted, understood newly all the time. So if we want to be responsive and responsible thinkers, we want to create space where our identity is not hanging on the edge of a cliff of being right. Because it means anytime the data moves, we have to deny it to protect our identities. You know, I think this is a really beautiful way to think. And and you said it yourself, it is it is more human. We tend to culturally, hmm. we love cognition, right? We love to, we love smart stuff and we love fact-driven stuff. But ultimately, you know, I would imagine, you know, and and I I hope someone's listening to this and going, nah, I don't agree with any of this stuff. That's all right. Um, it's cool. <laughs> Um, but I think what we can all get on the same page, whatever we're trying to do is, is raise kids who are, are healthy and happy and, and where the, the world is a better place for them having existed. That's right. This is, this is the page we can all get on. Now, how do we get there? Well, I feel like this, you know, now that I'm, I, I just came back from having lunch with all my mom friends and we all have kids in their thirties and forties now. And so I was saying to them, I just need to know, when one of your kids loses a job, do you guys worry? And they're like, oh my gosh, we worry completely. And then we just started down this path of how our adult children, we're still worried about them. We still want them to make good decisions. We're still not sure if they have enough information, right? Like this is just like what it is to be a parent. So part of mm -hmm. what I try to do is I live in the duality. I think, okay, I remember when I was 30, how did I navigate this? And how did I, my parents treat me? How do I want to be for my kids? So I do this a lot. I'm like, 
okay, in seventh grade, what did I really want from my mom? You know, I have a seventh grader. Will those ideas work for her? Like staying connected. That's what I'm saying. If we go in with certainty, like here's a pattern that I have to follow to achieve a good end and it works for all children. No, it's not going to. Being responsive, having a big imagination, asking your children what is and isn't working for them when you see that there's distress. These are ways that we actually create the healthy connection that allows them that they will be okay in the world because they start to notice, oh, when something doesn't work, I can pivot. It will be okay. There will be people who do not kick me out of a community just because my position changed or my thoughts changed or I had a different experience. Well, um, I hope, may us, may all of us um, find those communities. They start in our families. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people who really believes that the nuclear family, you know, the people that you spend the most time with and love the most, that if you can create that community as a place safe for dissent, you will really help change the way we are with each other outside of the family. I believe you're right. Um, and I believe a lot of the time we are asking for a some kind of top-down solution. The government needs to fix right. this. The education system needs to fix this. Well, what happens when we get there, <laughs> right? Um, what is our practice? How good at, at this stuff are we? Right. Um, and have we been overlooking opportunities to to do this every day, you know, because it's... Um, it's not solving all of our problems or we feel like we have to wait. Well, yeah. Who runs education? People. Who runs government? Human beings. You know, actually, it's really shocking when you realize that nobody has more than someone else. What we have is the same brain. We have our life experiences. We have our educations. But if we don't get to that place where we can start to recognize what's at stake for each of us, if all we care about is what's at stake for me, we actually cannot create solutions that include enough of us. So when you talk about us having the same stuff, you know, what my, my mind goes to attention, right? Because, you know, resources and opportunities vary. Totally. But we all have, have um, our attention. However, um, this is a segue, by the way, into screen time. Because yeah, I, I let's feel do like, it. Let's yeah, do it. I, you know, I feel like there are a lot of people who are trying to convince you otherwise and, um, and they want all of your attention and they, and they want you to believe that it's not that valuable. So how do we, I mean, this, I, I, I'm dying to hear your thoughts because this is a real challenge in our, in our house. How do you, how do you deal with, uh, that desire to just be, be in front of a TV, in front of a video game? How do we, how do we negotiate all of this stuff? I like to start always from a child's perspective because so often we don't come from that. We come from our own anxiety or regret, you know, of wasted years watching TV or playing Nintendo 64 or something. But what I would like to start with is a child's perspective. So children like stimulation. They like challenge. They like risk, mystery, surprise, adventure. They love those things. And a computer or a phone or a laptop or an iPad, these are adult tools. They are things created for adults. You put a five-year-old in front of a computer screen, it's like giving them keys to a car. That's how exciting it is. Like this is this massive tool designed for grownups and I, the eight-year-old, get to sit in front of it and control it. I have power over this adult tool. 
so often when we're thinking about our kids, all we're thinking about is the content of the games, but not sort of the context that makes the game interesting. Because honestly, the gameplay, very similar to board games, and board games are awesome, by the way, and parents never worry about them because it's out in public. Mm. Parents can supervise. They can overhear the conversation. They feel very safe. The second you put that game on a computer screen, parents freak out every time. So if we start from a child's perspective, this is an adult grown-up tool that I get to use. Secondly, it has been designed to keep them engaged. So we have to admit that. I mean, how many of us are hooked on Wordle right now or we use our solitaire game every night and we've got to get it before midnight because the crown won't have the jewels, right? Like all of us know that feeling. So we don't want to ignore that this is actually built in the design. It's something you can even talk with your kids about. This is designed to keep you going. Let's talk about at what point it's diminishing returns. Let's measure, let's examine when it stops being fun and you just feel annoyed by it. Cause this happens to me too. And we can hold each other accountable. So mm -hmm. starting from their perspective, the second thing to know, there are now longitudinal studies that have really revoked some of the early research on video games. Any new technology is always seen as harmful to children. When I was a kid, it was television. Uh, now we hardly talk about television because we've got online gaming instead, right? So what they've seen is that kids who play about seven to 10 hours of video games a week, and this would be kids older than eight. We're not talking about five-year-olds. The uh, eight, um, what is it, AAP or whatever, the American Association of Pediatrics, they have different guidelines for under two, two to five. But starting at about eight, seven to 10 hours a week tends to be the optimal amount of time. And it actually helps kids with emotional regulation. They use gaming the way I use running or pickleball or watching the Bengals play on television. They use it as a way to decompress from stress and to have a meaningful challenge that engages their mind, but the stakes are low. Games are amazing because you are agreeing to an objective that doesn't matter, you know? So it's the reason we all love sports. It's all the passion, none of the meaning, right? It's not religion, it's not politics. It's, oh good, I get to feel all worked up, but it really doesn't matter. So for a child, <laughs> these are all the feelings they're having about games. So if we go into it with this understanding that they're pleasurable, that the gaming itself is good for building strategy muscles in their brains, good for emotional regulation, a nice way to decompress and use an adult machine that's not a power tool like a buzzsaw. Um, now we can actually set up conditions that optimize that. We can say, you know what? In our family, gaming happens from 3 to 7 p.m. every night except for dinner. And uh, other than that, we have all this other array of engaging things you can do to maximize surprise, mystery, risk, and adventure. And that means having comparable excitement. You can't just tell your mm. kid, don't get on the computer, now go find something to do. There should be art supplies and video cameras they can make their own Lord of the Rings movies from and a trampoline and board games and an art table that's always open and ready for a mess. So often we restrict and we give no alternatives. And then our kids are just wandering like nomads through our houses. So that for me is where you begin. I think that's really smart. Um, yeah, I'm taking away this deeply pleasurable thing, but also in exchange you get bupkis. Enjoy. Right.
Right. And you know, I know with my kids, like they loved adult tools. So I let my kids do all kinds of things in the kitchen. My daughter was using my sewing machine. So was my son, actually. We all took up knitting. We became bird watchers and had like walks that we took with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. We had zoo passes. They joined Shakespeare troops and played sports. Um, every day we would go outside and kick the soccer ball in any weather that was possible to use it. We had a trampoline. I mean, Kids need things that feel risky, right? Like if you want to get a kid, uh, let me just tell you this. You want to get a kid off the computer, give them some matches and send them in the backyard. Go burn something. (laughs) I guarantee you they will leave the computer. But we usually say get off the computer and now just hold your body tight. All that energy you want to spend on the computer, just keep it inside and don't show me you're mad. Pretend like you're happy. It's not helpful. I remember uh, locally some years ago, um, a parent um, kind of got in trouble. I think somebody called child services because they found out that that his two young kids, and I don't know, they were like six and eight maybe, um, were riding public transit. Oh, and yeah. that was just their thing. They could go anywhere. And his thing was, look, I don't want my kids to play a lot of video games. We have to give them freedom somewhere. Yes. In fact, one of the things that um, we moved from California, where we lived in this tiny condo, to Ohio, where we were able to buy a house with a backyard. So my kids kept saying, we want a treehouse. We want a treehouse. And I'm picturing Disney Channel treehouses. Like, mm-hmm. you need a blueprint. You need someone to come in and build a stable structure. And then you got to put curtains in the windows. Like, And so I'm, I'm a writer. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. So we just kept putting them off, putting them off. And finally, one of my friends who's a very skilled mother, someone I quote in my other book, The Brave Learner, she said, Julie, just give them a hammer, nails, and a bunch of boards and point them towards a tree and just see what they build. And it was such a shocking suggestion. So I said that to my kids. Okay, here's a bunch of wood that we've collected. Here are some hammers and nails. Go at it. They built a ladder. They hooked up all these different boards across branches where they could just hang out and sit on them. It took them weeks to complete. It became their favorite place to write. They get a clipboard and go up there and do all of their writing for school. Uh, It was a place to hang a rope. It became this sort of, it didn't look anything like a treehouse. Let me just tell you that right now. But it was Mm -hmm. such an adventure and it was so their own. And yeah, we did go out there and make sure that when they got on one of these boards, it didn't fall and they didn't break an arm. But flip side, they had a lot of jurisdiction over how that thing turned out. I used to give them cans of paint and tell them paint all the backyard furniture. We'd get it at a garage sale and I didn't care how it looked. Just go paint it. You want a a bedroom that is yellow and purple? I'll buy the paint. Go ahead, get your headphones, listen to rent and paint your room. These are, you know, we actually had a rule in our family that you were allowed to write on your bedroom walls. One of my friends told me, if you let your kids write on their bedroom walls, they'll have the coolest house of all their friends and their friends will write things on their walls and you will learn things about your kids. It's like, oh, I love this idea. So my kids wrote all over their walls. And uh, then when they moved out, I painted over it. Like we are so weird. Adults are weird. We think little kids want to feel like adults. They don't. (laughs) <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, God, I mean, it's, it's such a cool, like, that's a great story. Um, but it occurs to me, you know, as, as you're telling me this story, I'm thinking to myself, how often I feel like I have to have expertise. Mm. I have to be able to be the foreman on this work site. I have to be able to tell you 
how it's done. And my development is holding up everybody else's development. And they it, it's just ego. They don't need me. That's they're right. Good. That's right. In fact, and obviously with a five-year-old, they're not going to be the ones to build a treehouse, right? Like when we started, my oldest was probably 13. So, you know, some of this you can scale. But when my oldest was five, we made those rain sticks with like a large um, UPS tube. And I let them just hammer as many nails as they wanted into this tube. And then you add a bunch of, uh, of rice and then you seal the top and use electrical tape to decorate it. And the next thing you know, they've hammered a hundred nails into a tube. Do you know how satisfying that is for a child to hammer with a nail and a hammer in your house? That's really interesting, more fun than a computer game. So just start thinking what creates risk? What creates adventure? And they'll get off the computer if they think there is something worthy of their energy. That's such a great way to think about this. All right, let's promote you. <laughs> tell tell the world about, uh, you know, how to give you money. <laughs> oh, you're so, it's so sweet. So Raising Critical Thinkers is available anywhere where books are sold. I did do the audio recording. So if you want to go on Audible and download it, you can hear me talking there. Uh, go to RaisingCriticalThinkers.com. There's also a free book club companion guide that you can download because I think you should read this book in a group and have these conversations. It's very fruitful to be with people when you talk about these ideas. If you're interested in support for writing and education and just being a parent who participates in your child's education, go to bravewriter.com, download my seven-day writing blitz for free, and it will give you a lot of the kinds of ideas I'm sharing with you right now around writing and will transform how your kids think about writing and you. Julie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was a really fun conversation. I had a lot of takeaways from this one, but my favorite was danger. I have definitely found a correlation in my own life between how dangerous something is and how much fun I have. I'm a pretty sedate guy, so I'm not going base jumping or hella skiing, and I won't even ride a motorcycle now that I'm a dad. But why can't we find that sweet spot for our kids where they have controlled risk, where they're learning, but they're still safe? Now, I should probably put a disclaimer here and say, only do this under expert supervision or maybe just use your best judgment. But it's true. We, we can't just take away a fun, exciting thing, put absolutely nothing in to replace it, and then expect our kids to love the experience. And to close the loop on this whole discussion, we also can't just applaud it when our kids get the right answer and never focus on how they got there. This is hard. This is the real work. But I think that we can model it by focusing on process, by being wrong and being comfortable being wrong and then learning. And probably most of all, by forgetting about outcomes and really investing in process. I want to thank you for hanging out with us today. Thanks to the Unlearning Network, to our sponsor, Othership, and to our guest, Julie Bogart. We'll see you soon. <laughs>